0: Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and this is episode eight of the podcast, Revolution Z, Life After Capitalism. First, I'm sorry, but I must make an appeal. For this podcast to succeed requires that we get some help. We need help reaching an audience. People can help on social media, with friends, by whatever means you have to reach out to other people and to get them to pay attention and to listen and to decide if they like Revolution Z. And second, we also do need financial aid, so if you can manage that, and if you would like to, you can go to www.patreon.com slash Revolution Z. There you can become a patron, that's what they call it, and make a donation. Now, on to Episode 8, entitled, Who Decides What. In prior episodes, Revolution Z addressed the need for vision. We made a case that without vision, activism didn't have an orientation, wasn't wouldn't be able to to be compelling and and uh, and answer people's question, what do you want? Uh, that it would be hampered, and so re- vision is important. If vision is important, how do we go about developing it? Well. Revolution Z's prior episodes also laid an ethical foundation for assessing vision, and for that matter, for assessing existing relations, existing societies. To do that, we put forth a bunch of values, four really, solidarity, diversity, equity, and self-management. We discussed how duration, intensity, and onerousness of socially valued work should determine people's income in a worthy economy. We discussed how no one should own resources or means of production, neither to accrue profit nor to lord it over employees. We discussed the merits and components of people having a say in decisions in proportion as they are affected by them, and we called that self-management. We considered and rejected doubts about all these, and we urged that these matters of income, distribution, property, and decision-making were together important components of a desirable economy— whether we might choose to call that economy participatory economics or participatory socialism. So again, regarding income, we rejected workplace owners taking profits, and we also rejected ethically unwarranted income differences due to bargaining power, differences in people innate traits, people having better or worse tools, or some people being in an industry producing something of greater or lesser value than someone else. Instead of all that, We advocated workers getting income only for how long they work, for how hard they work, and for the harshness of conditions under which they work as long as they are producing socially valued products. We also explored the incentive and equity effects of that approach and decided that they were, in fact, exactly what a good society needs. Regarding decision making, we made a case for the merits of self-management. We advocated workers' councils, We opposed decisions that would govern workers from above, and we considered the implications of this idea of self-management for the quality of decisions and for respect for decisions, including addressing criticisms. I hope the content so far has been helpful, but as we left the earlier discussion of self-management, we realized that to have everyone have a say in decisions in proportion as they are affected by them posed a pretty serious problem. If four out of five people in a given workplace, and in fact in all workplaces, are unprepared to participate in decisions, if their circumstances at work create in them a lack of confidence, diminish their skills, isolate them from other workers, diminish their their propensity to participate, and to participate in an informed manner because they have also had their had their knowledge of the workplace limited by their position and by their work, well, then they're not going to make very good decisions. And that would obviously damn uh, self-management as a goal. So in this eight, eighth episode of Revolution Z, which is titled Who Does What?, we take up the task of ensuring that five out of five workers are well-equipped to participate in decision-making. We address how we ought to apportion tasks to form jobs in each workplace in a good economy so that people can participate. While it is rarely acknowledged, what distinguishes how we allot tasks in capitalism is that among all the multitude of jobs that people hold, around 20% of workers do a mix of tasks that convey to them information, skills, confidence, and social ties that facilitate participating in decision-making. In other words, the work that they do the actual activity that they do each day by virtue of their position in their workplace gives them these advantages, this information, skills, confidence, and social connections with others, all of which facilitate their participating in effective decision making. In contrast, the other 80% of workers uh, do a mix of primarily rote and repetitive tasks. The work that they do each day by virtue of their position in their workplace, exhausts them, it deadens them, it disquills them, it isolates them, and it literally uninforms them to the point where they are neither prepared nor inclined to participate in decision-making. It's a product of their circumstances. It's an outcome of what they are doing in the workplace. This difference, that some are empowered by what they do each day, and some are disempowered by what they do each day, is built into the skewed distribution of empowering tasks. More, the different situation of the two work groups, really two classes, is great enough that we should pay close attention to it. It has important effects on how these groups view themselves, view society, on what their interests are, and on what their potentials are. So we don't want to overlook its implications. To keep it in our thinking... I want to call those who monopolize empowering tasks coordinators, and I want to call those who do overwhelmingly disempowering tasks workers. The point is to keep our eyes on this distinction because this distinction is going to play an important role in whether or not we have a good society. More, I claim this distinction is a class division because the two groups not only experience their work differently but as a result have different interests, material and social. They have different inclinations and dispositions. They view each other in skewed ways. For example, the coordinator class tends to view the working class as subordinate and as inferior, incapable, less than able to participate, less skilled, less knowledgeable. And there's some truth to it because the workplace makes the workers have those attributes. Workers, on the other hand, look upwards at this coordinator class, at managers, at doctors, at lawyers, at people whose circumstances empower them with a great deal of enmity. In fact, in modern societies, workers rarely encounter capitalists. Instead, they counter the coordinator class, and they feel themselves put down by the coordinator class. And thus, their enmity, their their dislike, their class hatred, is often directed at the coordinator class. More, this is all intrinsic to what is called the corporate division of labor. It's the way we divide up work, and it causes some to monopolize empowering tasks and others to be left with disempowering tasks. Finally, I claim that even a workplace that wants to be democratic, that starts out with an entire workforce that wants to be democratic, If it retains a corporate division of labor, in other words, if some of those workers do overwhelmingly empowering work while others do overwhelmingly disempowering work, then the class division between empowered and disempowered employees will subvert democratic desires. If we have a corporate division of labor, we will have a class division between coordinators and workers, and we will not have self-management. The 20% coordinator class will dominate the 80% working class, even if owners are no longer present. I want to relay an experience I had. It was in Argentina quite a few years ago after a crisis in the Argentine economy led to many workplaces getting into dire straits. And workers took over many workplaces, in fact, hundreds. And they took over, and the owners left, and in many cases even the old coordinator class left, and the workers would institute democratic decision-making through councils, and they would pretty much equilibrate income. Okay, so I'm at a meeting with representatives from about 50 of these workplaces that had been taken over, and I'm supposed to give a talk, and before I do, I suggest that we go around the room and that people say just a bit about the workplace they're coming from and their experience. Well, we start to do that. And at the beginning... People are pretty excited and upbeat. After all, they're meeting folks like themselves who have taken over a workplace and are are working it and are making it work and are are proceeding um, to try and create something new and better. But as the descriptions proceed, the mood in the room begins to darken. It becomes restrained, then morose, then depressed. Very quickly. About the seventh person who talks said this, I can't believe says this representative from an occupied workplace, that I would ever say something like this. I just can't believe I would. But when Margaret Thatcher, the British Prime Minister, said, there is no alternative, I thought all she was doing was mouthing a platitude useful in keeping control over working people and making us feel that there was nothing better that we could strive for. I thought it was bull. But now... A few months into occupying a factory, after setting up councils, after imposing democratic decision-making, I'm beginning to think maybe Margaret Thatcher was right, because all the old crap is coming back. I go to work each day, and it's alienated. It's, it's the, the, the old features, the old attributes that were so so depressing and upsetting before, now they're even more depressing. Because after all, we took over and the owner is gone, and yet it's all coming back. So at that point, I I interrupted the discussion, and I tried to contribute something. Because what I was hearing was that... These workers who took over workplaces retained the old division of labor. And that was the first question I asked them. I said, did you retain the old division of labor? Did you keep things organized pretty much the way it was, except without the capitalists? And in many cases, without even the people who had had the more empowering work before. And they said, yes, they did. What else could they do? Of course they did. And I said, well, who took the the jobs that had been held by people who left? And they said, well, we opened it up for a discussion and various people volunteered to do that. And I said, well, when you say all the old crap is coming back, you mean those people are starting to pay themselves more. You mean those people are starting to look down on others in the workplace. Is that right? And they agreed. And I said, well, that's not human nature, which is what you're afraid it is and which which is what you're implying it is when you say maybe Margaret Thatcher was right. Because that's what she was saying. She was saying... The, the The depressing oppressive way of doing things was inevitable it was an outcome of human nature and it was necessary in order to get anything done but the reality is it isn't an outcome of human nature and it isn't necessary to get anything done instead it's a product of the division of labor that you retained in any event once we know what to look for a corporate division of labor subverting equity and self-management we can see that the history of of what's now called 20th century socialism, what existed in the Soviet Union, for example, as well as of non-profit and publicly aimed firms within capitalism. Many of you have probably had experience with them. Firms that aren't owned by capitalists, but look just like capitalist firms, and are just as alienating, or maybe a bit less so, but basically similarly so, to the workers. This all demonstrates our claim. In each... There's an old division of labor, a corporate division of labor. In each, about 20% monopolize empowering work. In each, that 20% becomes a ruling class. In other words, a corporate division of labor, even with workers trying to create new relations, elevates some to become a coordinator class, keeping others down as a subordinate working class. This is the, the, the way that institutions work. It's the way that institutional structures work. They have intrinsic implications, and we have to keep our eyes on those. And what it means to have a vision is to get rid of, to replace the institutions which have harmful or even debilitating and deadly effects, and to replace them with others. Most people on the left understand this with respect to, say, private ownership of the means of production. But not everyone understands it with respect to the corporate division of labor. The point is, the division between coordinators and workers is structural. The opposed situations and interests are blatant. The hierarchical results are undeniable. That nearly everyone accepts that this division of labor is simply the way it is, the natural order, is also evident and highly beneficial to those who benefit from the division. To have some employees, such as managers, doctors, lawyers, accountants, and public officials, empowered, And to have other employees who do only rote and routine tasks disempowered, with the empowered employees dominating outcomes, accruing excessive incomes, and feeling that they deserve their greater power and wealth, and that the disempowered workers deserve their subservience, clearly demolishes prospects for equity, self-management, and solidarity. It follows that maintaining the corporate division of labor subverts prospects for a desirable economy. In other words, as evidenced by the earlier description of the experience of workers in factories they had taken over, even if you have wonderful values and desires, if you retain the old corporate division of labor, it will subvert those values and desires and impose class rule. But if we have to get rid of the corporate division of labor, if that's a crucial thing to do, what's our alternative? While it's quite foreign to widespread beliefs and habits. Once we ask if an alternative is possible, the solution becomes pretty evident. If we must reject defining jobs so that 20% of the workforce has means and disposition to rule over 80% who lack means and who expect to be ruled, then the solution must be to redefine jobs so that their daily tasks comparably prepare all employees to contribute to collective self-management. If we can't have jobs elevating 20% of the workforce over 80% of the workforce, then we must change whatever it is about jobs that causes that to occur. Suppose we visited a world where we saw that the workforce had two parts. One ruled and the other was ruled. The ruling parts members all ate good food, and the ruled parts members all ate horrible food. And suppose it was clear that the good food strengthened, enlightened, and inspired people while the bad food weakens, stunted, and depressed people. In that case, we could easily see that to eliminate this hypothetical world's class division, we would have to let everyone share the good food. We would need to balance good food apportionment. If we failed to do that, it wouldn't matter what else we did. We would still have this division between some empowered and some disempowered. Okay, so what about our world? Isn't it just as evident That to eliminate the work of coordinator class division, we have to all share the factors that cause its existence. In our case, not good food, but empowering tasks. Isn't it just as clear that we need to balance jobs so that we all do a fair share of empowering and disempowering tasks? So that we are all, therefore, comparably equipped and inclined by our situations to participate in decision-making. So five out of five of us are ready and able to decide instead of one out of five of us. In short, we need to guarantee that no group monopolizes empowering tasks and dominates another group which is denied empowering tasks. Not only do we have to remove the property relations that entitle capitalists to profits and power, but we also have to remove the division of labor that makes coordinators a separate class above workers. We have to ensure that all employees have shared interests and ample capacity for decision-making. And to do that, we have to make sure... There, there is no longer a corporate division of labor, but instead a balanced distribution of empowering tasks. If we retain a corporate division of labor, we will preserve in inequity, prevent solidarity, and destroy self-management. If we establish balanced job complexes, where each worker has a fair share of empowering tasks, we will not only allow but propel equity, solidarity, and self-management. Consider any workplace you like. Balanced job complexes means no one does just surgery or just cleans up after surgeons. No one only teaches or only sweeps. No one only digs resources from a mind or only schedules the mind's operations. Balanced job complexes mean that all workers do a mix of tasks such that each job's overall empowerment effect is like that of all other jobs. The combination of tasks that I do Comparably affects me to the way the combination of tasks you do affects you it 's not that we all do the same thing it's that we all do a mix of things such that the empowerment effect of our work days is comparable. I apply to some workplace for a job that I like, unlike now, however, all available jobs are balanced for empowerment effect everyone 's work prepares them to make informed, confident decisions. but can we balance jobs? without incurring dire offsetting damage. I apply to a workplace for a job that I like. Unlike now, however, all available jobs are balanced for empowerment effects so that everyone's work prepares them to make informed, confident decisions. If we can balance jobs across all workplaces without incurring some dire offsetting damage, then balanced job complexes will answer our question, who does what, by eliminating the coordinator worker class hierarchy. But can we balance jobs without incurring dire or offsetting damage? Can we get rid of the class division based on empowerment differences? Can we, in that way, make self-management viable and effective without crippling output or oppressing people? Ultimately, can we have classlessness? In the next vision-focused episode of Revolution Z, we will consider why some people will feel that balancing jobs is unviable and would even impose economic disaster on society and then we will show the falsity of their concerns. But for now, this is Michael Albert, signing off for Revolution Z. Until next time.